Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Spent a good deal of time last week, not really my kind of the typical sermon that I do, more of a theological uh, lesson than it was a sermon, but just uh, remember that we uh, highlighted those three, actually four different positions that people take in regard to chapter 20 in regard to the millennial kingdom. Uh, and I mentioned last week that there is biblical basis for three of those. There is a biblical basis for historic pre-mill. It would be things like the, the parable of the mustard seed, where you have the picture of the kingdom of God starting out as a little seed that just keeps growing bigger and bigger. The hallmark of <clears throat> post-millennialism is that they believe that there will be a time, and this is the millennium kingdom, when there will be a very rapid and, 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 and deep and rich advancement of the gospel into the world to the point that they sometimes say that the, the, the world itself will be Christianized. There will be mass conversions of Christian, to, to, to Christianity in what's called the millennial kingdom. And then Christ will come after that. See, this is why it's called post-millennialism. is because the millennium comes first, and then Christ actually comes after that. Then we have historic premillennialism. And forgive me if I've gotten off track here. I think maybe I said the wrong thing at the wrong time already. But, but do you understand that the, the keeping all the details of all these different approaches in your mind is very difficult? Because they have so many similarities, but at the same time, every one of them has has distinctive differences. The pre-mill view is this, is the idea that the, the, the kingdom is established first of all, and then Christ comes, or, or, or that Christ comes, and then the kingdom is established after that. That kingdom that is spoken about in Revelation chapter 20. That's the basic premise of post-millennialism. Amillennialism, on the other hand, is the one that looks at the millennium basically as the church age. In other words, we would say that we are actually living in the millennium. And as I said today, that there is, last week, there is biblical basis for all three of those views. Because that is true. All three of those views are acceptable in the Presbyterian Church in America. What you would find, however, is this, is that the predominance of teaching elders in the PCA and churches in the PCA would have an all-millennial view. In other words, we take Revelation 20 non-literally because we understand that Revelation is full of all kinds of figures and symbols, and we recognize or we see this thousand years as being symbolic, not literal symbolic of the church age, a time when there has been certainly a partial binding of Satan, as we talked about so much last week, that Satan, in a sense, has been bound. He was bound by Christ when he came. Jesus said this, that he came to bind the strong man, that we live in that time. All three of those views have significant biblical argument 
The one that we do not accept is dispensational premillennialism. Because it projects the idea that Christ will come and he will establish a physical, literal, 1,000-year reign where he will establish his throne in Jerusalem, the temple will be rebuilt, and animal sacrifices will be reinstituted in the temple. The premier thing, because that is very similar to what you would find with historic premill. The distinguishing factor of uh, dispensational premill is this idea that there's this pre-tribulational rapture that comes before the great tribulation. The primary text they use to support that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And what I would challenge you with this idea this morning is it does not at all teach a pre-tribulational rapture. What 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches is the second coming of Jesus. And the rapture there that takes place, the lifting up of people in the air, is when Jesus comes, all of his people that are here on the earth, he's going to take up into into the sky with him. In all the bodies of the dead, the spirits have come with him. They are reunited, they are resurrected, and they join him in the air. And after that, the wrath of God will be poured out upon this planet. For a time, God's judgment coming upon the wickedness and evilness that is here. Can we doubt that there's wickedness and evilness in the world? Do we think that God is going to endure it indefinitely? He abhors it. It really is the most amazing thing that Christ hasn't come back yet. But we have to understand that God has his reasons. There were people in the days of Peter who couldn't understand why Jesus hadn't come back yet. And what Peter says is don't make a mistake, guys. God is not slow to fulfilling his promises. He said he's going to come, and he will come. But he's coming in his time. Not my time, not your time. His time. We're going to be picking up at verse 4 this morning. I'm going to read from the beginning, though. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, And Satan had bound him for a thousand years, there's the millennium, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time, which we're going to get into more in just a few minutes. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus And because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the blood city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever uh, and ever. We've seen thrones mentioned in Revelation already. If you think back all the way to chapter 4 and 5, the thrones uh, that the 24 elders sat on around the throne uh, of God at the center of, uh, of everything. When we think about thrones, we think about royalty, right? We think about people ruling. Uh, we think about people of authority and power. Uh, notice here the ones that, uh, that these thrones are set up for are the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, it would be nice maybe. No, I don't guess it would be. When, when I die, I hope it's just one of those things where I go to sleep at night and I just don't wake up. That would be just ideal for me, you know, and all that. Uh, you know, beheading, there probably are countries in the world today that when you're executed, they still behead people. Most places don't anymore because it's considered to be very gruesome and barbaric and uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. But you need to understand that in the, the first century, the ancient Near East, that beheading was a very common way of executing people. For instance, we know this, that the Apostle Paul was eventually beheaded in Rome. Uh, we have reason to believe that James, the brother of John, who was killed by the sword according to the order of Herod, was probably beheaded as well. Very gruesome way of of dying, and, and and you can read testimonies given in past years by people of heads being lobbed off, and at the same time, those eyes still moving around, and you know, people being conscious, conscious, apparently for a brief period of time before all their blood drains from their head. You can imagine how horrifying that would be, that whole experience. It's interesting that uh, we know this. We know that there have, we have had a lot of brothers and sisters down through the generations who have been martyred for their faith. And you don't hear many people talking about it, but there are estimates that... that that of all the centuries for the last 2,000 years, the number of people who were martyred for their faith, for their Christian faith, was highest in the 20th century than any of the past centuries for 2,000 years. You and I don't hear a whole lot about it because it's not something that's publicized that so, so much anymore. We live in a land where that doesn't happen. But there are places where it's illegal for you to be a Christian. There are places where if you convert from one religion to Christianity, you're charged with 
a crime. In some places to the extent that you die as a result of it. That was the world that these first century Christians lived in. That John was writing these seven letters to. Those churches were severely persecuted. We know that Antipas and we know that Polycarp were martyred for their faith just simply because they professed Christ as Lord and Savior and they refused to confess Caesar is Lord. We've seen these martyrs, the souls are martyrs in the book of Revelation already. If you go back to chapter 9, find them there underneath the altar. And they're crying out to the Lord. When? When will the time come? And ultimately, that's the time that's going to come when Christ comes. Because one of the things that is going to happen is, as we said, God's judgment is going to fall upon those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who have not had forgiveness of their sins. They're still in their sins. They, uh, they're going to be judged for their sins. But here we find them again. They're described here as those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received the mark upon their forehead or their hand. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I just want you to notice here that there's a distinction being made here between those Christians who are martyred for their faith and, and those who are not. You follow me? In other words, it's very likely that no one in this room is actually going to give their life because of the sort of thing that was going on in the first century. Because we don't live in a land right now where things like that happen. It could turn that way. And if we, we continue on the ground we're on today, it shouldn't surprise us if 100 years from now they may be doing things like that in the good old USA. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, your head gets lobbed off. That could happen. It's happened over and over again in the history of the world. But these are reigning... And I would say this, they're reigning with Christ, and they're reigning with Christ in heaven. Christ hasn't returned to the earth yet to establish a millennial kingdom or anything else. He's ruling in heaven over his church. And the saints are ruling with him. And in particular, the saints that have been martyred are ruling with him. There's a sense there's a special place in heaven for them. Because they gave their very lives for their faith. But it also includes everyone who has not received the mark of the beast. Which would be everyone who has the seal of God. God the Father and God the Son on their forehead. Yet they died and they've gone to heaven. 
they came to life. I don't think that's supposed to indicate to us that uh, there's been a resurrection. Or that life continues on for us in spirit, not in body, but in spirit. As we go to be with the Lord. But notice here that they're reigning with Christ in heaven. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now, one of the questions before us is this, is who are the rest of the dead? Are they believers who are not martyred? I would say they can't be. Uh, is a reference to those who have died apart from Christ. That doesn't sound a fit either. I just want you to know something. What we have before us this morning is one of the most difficult things in the whole book of Revelation to explain. The way I look upon it is a little bit different than you're going to find with most of the commentators. Because what they see in this, and what is very clear in this, is there, there is, uh, there's a contrast that's been being made here in two aspects. Uh, one of those is resurrection, because it makes reference to more than one resurrection taking place. Uh, But it also talks about first death and second death. And we know exactly what the second death is because it tells us in verse 14, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So what is the second death? It's being thrown and cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Obviously, the first death is physical death. When the body dies. So you would say that one of these deaths is a spiritual kind of death and the other one is a physical death. And and so very often what people conclude is the same thing is true for the life. One of these is, is reference to spiritual life. The other one is to spiritual or to physical life. The physical life being the time of the resurrection of the body that takes place and body and spirit are reunited. So, from that perspective, what would be the first resurrection? That would be the second resurrection. What would be the first resurrection? Well, it could be one of two things according to what most people have written. One of those is this, is some people believe that it is actually... Uh, it is the spirit leaving the body at the time of physical death and ascending to, he- to heaven. They see that as a type of resurrection. Uh, others say things like this. Uh, that the first resurrection is, is the equivalent of being born again. In other words, it's a spiritual resurrection. Now, Jesus talks about being born again. You must be born again or not see the kingdom of heaven. And back in John chapter 3, right? Notice this in John's gospel. 
there's a sense in which we can see that as a resurrection. We use this as an illustration very often. You know, the, 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 what we're talking about is, is this, is people that don't know Jesus, have not, have not been regenerated, they've not been born again, that they are dead in their trespasses, they're dead in their sins. So there's a sense in which being born again is a release from that. There's a sense in which it is being spiritually resurrected to a newness of life, right? So you can understand why these arguments come from where they come from. I think there's evidence in Scripture to conclude something different. So it may be one of those, and I'm not going to tell you it's one or the other one or, or whatever. But what I'm going to tell you is there's another choice that we can make, and that is that this reference to the first resurrection, if you look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, it talks about the resurrection. Here, let me just read it for you. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall what? Shall ra- rise first. What does that first mean? It means that the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected first, and then those who are not in Christ are going to be resurrected after. In other words, the resurrection takes place in two phases. And unless someone can convince me otherwise, that's how I read this. That's what's being talked about here. Is that first resurrection where all believers that have died, their bodies are resurrected from the dead. In that first phase of the resurrection to come. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these, and this is, a, this is another argument for the argument I just made. I haven't read anyone say any what I've just told you. This is the conclusion I've come to completely on my own. All the other Reformed commentators are saying this is the, you know, this is sentence back into heaven or it's the, you know, being born again or whatever. And I'm just saying this, I just read this, you know, more, well, I think, matter-of-factly, and it talks about the first resurrection. And it makes sense to me that that's what's going on. And I think there's argument right here in this passage for that. Because these are the ones that the second death has no power over. In other words, these are the ones that will not be cast into the lake of fire. If you read through the rest of this chapter... You're going to find that Satan's going to be thrown in that lake of fire. We have already read that the, the first beast and the second beast, who is also the false prophet, they've already been thrown in the lake of fire. And then you get down to the end of this chapter, and it says, And if anyone's name was not, not found or written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. The only people who will not suffer that second death are those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who have his mark. Everyone else. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. Over the thousand years through the church age. 
One of the things I was thinking about this morning, it sounds to me like this, that all of these people who have been martyred, their lives have been taken away from them because of their association with Jesus, that in the end, they will judge the people that have killed, murdered them. Can you imagine being someone that had done something like that? And now to be judged by the one you did it to? Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So he's been bound during this time of the millennium. We don't necessarily understand why this happens. It would be fine with me if God was done with Satan already. It would be wonderful as far as I'm concerned if he was just out of the picture totally, completely, absolutely gone forever already. Now why in the world would God bind him for this period of time and then let him go to wreak havoc? To deceive people. So what is your answer to that question? You know what mine is? I don't know. I don't have a clue. But God has a reason. And that ought to be good enough for all of us. He doesn't have to explain it to us. The only thing we have to know is he's going to do this because we know he's going to do it because he's told us he's going to do it. Why does he tell us he's going to do it? One of the reasons is maybe when it happens, it's so it won't surprise us. Now, there's great tribulation that is mentioned in Scripture. This part of this eschatology, eschatological picture. The thing that makes the most sense for me is this, is this, is this. That Satan being, being loosed again is the tree. He brings about the great tribulation on the church. We need to make a distinction between what's, what's identified in the Bible as the wrath of God and the great tribulation. They're not the same thing. Some people want to read them as if they are. They are not. They're not the same events. The wrath of God is the judgment of God that is poured out upon the unbelieving world at the end of time. The tribulation is a heightened sense of difficulty that comes, I believe, on the church. In other words, heightened persecution of the church that comes immediately before Jesus returns the second time. This is one of the arguments that dispensationalist people want to use, is that early on in the book of 1 Thessalonians, it says that he's going to save us from the wrath to come. And what I'd say, yes, as he is, but what is that wrath? That wrath is a wrath of God that comes at the end of time. Not during the Great Tribulation. 
the culprit in the great tribulation, the, you know, the, the harm and all that that falls upon the earth during the tribulation is not given or come directly from God. In other words, it's not the wrath of God being poured out directly upon the world. But it will be in the end when the real wrath comes. That is the wrath that he saves us from. Not the tribulation. Like we said before that some people will describe that particular view, viewpoint as the viewpoint of wishful thinking. No one wants to go through the tribulation. Does it sound like something you want to have to go through? But one of the, you know, one of the things, ideas that uh, post-millennial people have is that things are, are going to get better. You know, conditions on the earth are going to get better, and they're going to get better, and they're going to get better, and then Jesus is going to come after that. But to be honest with you, I just don't see that reflected much in the Bible. I really believe this, that that a lot, lot of eschatological teaching in the last couple of centuries has wounded the church deeply. Because rather than being prepared possibly for the tribulation when it does come, people are going to be shocked by it because they don't expect it to come now. Because it doesn't fit into my eschatological scheme of things. That's not where it's plugged into the overall picture. I'm supposed to be raptured out of here before it happens. And let me tell you guys, there is not one shred of evidence and history of anyone believing in a pre-trib rapture until the early 1800s. Nobody thought about it. It didn't cross anybody's mind. All of these people that we consider to be the greatest theologians of all time, John Calvin and John Knox and Augustine and all these people, these thoughts never even crossed their mind. But today, there are so many people who believe it, and they they think it's orthodoxy. There are a lot of people in the church today, a lot of people in in this community, if they heard me say what I'm saying to you last Sunday and this Sunday morning, they would be incensed with me. They would be ready to put me through a little tribulation. Because this viewpoint that was unheard of until more recent history has become the prominent, dominant viewpoint that is ruled all through the 20th century and into the 21st century in this land. And people are convinced that it's the biblical picture of things. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to this. It's very easy for us to lose the forest for the trees in Revelation. It's easy to do that. There's so many details about this, that, and the other. 
in all of that. We always have to keep it in the context of the overarching messages that we find in the book. And there are two main ones. And one of those is Christ is going to be victorious in the end. And the other one is God is going to judge the world. We don't get anything else out of Revelation. Those are the two primary things that we need to get. But some of this stuff has gotten to be so complicated, it's hard to even keep it all straight in your head. If you could see some of the charts that people have come up with, it is just amazing. All the little details of this, that, and the other that have been worked into this scheme of things. and This it's, 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 it's really is amazing. And, and, and I'm not sure anybody understands any of it. It's got to be that complicated. I don't know about you, but I like things simple. I mean, I really do. And let me just say something. Being a dispensationalist, premillennialist, or being an amillennial, or postmill, or historic premill, none of those are going to keep you out of heaven. In other words, your position on this particular thing does not determine whether you actually get into heaven or not. Some people almost make it out to be like that. There are people who would question your Christianity if you don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. Okay. Anyway, at the end of the millennium, Satan's going to be released, released from his prison. And what's he going to do? He's going to deceive the nations. And then you see reference to Gog and Magog comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 39. Representative of the wicked, evil world is what it comes down to. Lots, and, and, and they're gathered for war. What I would say, what we have here is another yet, another after three or four already descriptions of the final battle, which we call Armageddon. So how is it that we're here chapters and chapters after we've seen this stuff happen already? And it's because of this. It's because Revelation is not a single vision that, that God gave, that, that Jesus gave to the, to the Apostle John. That is just this unfolding one, you know, event after event after event through history. It's just like seven is so prominent in the whole book of Revelation that what we have here is seven visions. And several of those visions that we've seen already have ended with this battle of Armageddon. This is we here is ending kind of with the same thing. In other words, if you don't believe that, that, that this is true, that it's a, actually a series of, of different visions, that it, the Battle of Armageddon is fought three or four times in the book of Revelation. And it starts way back. So what I'm telling you is there's just no way that you can look at a book and take it at face value and have this idea that it's just this one thing after the other from beginning to end as time goes on unfolding. You'd have to have your head stuck in the sand to come to that conclusion. 
They came up on the broad plain. The, you know, Armageddon is the plain of Megiddo. Very common battlefield in northern Israel, in ancient history, even in modern history. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Finally, the end of the evil one. The evil one who tried to wreak havoc in heaven, an angel, a higher angel created by God to serve God, who rebelled against God, who convinced himself that he was going to push God off the throne. And I think he's the great deceiver. He's even deceived himself. He believes that in the end, somehow, he's going to be victorious. He's deceived himself that much. Why would he continue to do what he's doing if he didn't believe he had some chance of winning? He's the deceiver. He's deceived even himself. And we know that he played such a central part in the whole business that took place with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he is no threat to God. He's never been any threat to God. God could squash Satan like a grape if he wanted to at any time. He has no power and authority over the great one. None. What power and authority he has, God allows him to have it. Now, we look at it and we don't understand why God would allow him to have any power and authority at all, but he does. But it's a God thing. He has a purpose in it. You and I don't understand what that purpose is. But we understand that God has a purpose. And it's a good purpose. Because God doesn't do anything bad. It's always good. And we need to be satisfied with that. I don't know about you, but I am very satisfied with that. I don't have to have all my I's dotted and all my T's crossed. I don't have to have an answer to absolutely every question I have about everything. I don't have to have, uh, you know, an absolutely perfect answer to every question that I find raised here in the book of Revelation. Some things are really clear, guys and gals, and some things just are not. And we need to be satisfied with it being that way. We don't know everything, and God hasn't revealed everything to us. But the end has come for that evil one who has done so much hurt and so much harm. Have you ever read Dante's Divine Comedy? It's not funny. <laughs> I'm not too sure why it's called the comedy. 
that it's, uh, it was written by Dante, and I'm not sure it's, it's it was hundreds of years ago. That He's an Italian. And, and basically it has to do with a trip he takes through hell. And it's, it's fiction. It's not real. It's fiction. It's not even based on anything in the Bible. But it portrays this idea that hell is, there's degrees of hell. You know, because there are degrees of wickedness or evilness, you know, as far as we understand things to be, uh, and, and all of that. And so what I'm telling you here is the idea that hell is not going to be exactly the same thing for everybody. For some people, hell is going to be a lot worse. And we know that God doesn't look upon every sin equally. Because Jesus told Pilate that the people who brought me to you, their sin is worse than yours is. In other words, the punishment for their sin is going to be worse than what you endure. But Dante begins this trip through hell. And talks about the suffering that people are enduring at different places. And you know, in the beginning, it's not so bad, but the further you get, the worse it gets. Then he comes to the end, the very deepest part of hell. And there's a beast there. And in the jaws of that beast is Lucifer. And the idea is this, is that he will be chewed for the rest of eternity. By that beast. And you need to understand that's fictitious. It's not biblical. But we need to understand that the end is not really the end in the absolute sense of an end. That this torment will go on forever. It will never cease. It will never lessen. And he will never repent. Ever. That's why it's eternal. We will wrap up 20 next week.